especially younger people, there's fairly little consideration for the culture of tattoo. If we're not careful, it'll, it'll die out. I've heard stories about old Charlie Wagner, you know, he would charge different prices for a tattoo based on how many times he had to spit in the ink to thin it out, <laughs> you know? Uh... I can't tell you how many great looking tattoos I've seen on people and yeah, you know, the tattoo's okay or whatever, but the guy was such an asshole. Like, well, you sat there for three or four hours. I think that tattooing at the end of the day is about people. My name is Steph Bastian. In my 10 years on the road, I've met many unique characters in the tattoo business, and they all have one thing in common, incredible stories. Stories of past times, personal growth, priceless experience, and of course, bizarre happenings. I want to share those stories with you. This is Tattoo Tales. Okay, let me ask you one thing. Can you remember uh, the first time that you ever seen a tattoo, even if you didn't know what it was? The oh. very first memory you have. Uh, you know, I mean, as, as I guess you know, my father was a tattooist, right? And he yeah. actually started, I think my cat's trying to make an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> um, he actually started when I was about four years old. So he was in the process of... of uh, kind of getting heavily tattooed, you know, when I was very, very young. So, you know, right from the beginning, I've been around tattoo. It wasn't, it wasn't some uh, odd, inexplicable thing that was outside of, you know, the home. It was, it was very much a part of my family from yeah. day one. I think my dad said he got his first tattoo when he was 12 years old. All right. <laughs> How? Where? Well, he grew up in Florida, right? And uh, so I guess there was some guy that called himself Stitch that was working out of his uh, mobile home, uh, kind of close to where he was living. So him and his buddies one day just went out and got tattooed, you know, and I think he, his mother's name was Rose. So he got a nice big rose on his arm and he said, hey, Ma, you know, like, uh, you know. I got this thing for you. And she said, yeah, this is for you. Whack. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but that was it. He had the bug from there, you know. So <clears throat> even when I was a small child, it was it was around. And, and uh, he, he had a master's in fine art and had been uh, pursuing a fine art career when he decided to walk away from that and uh, pursue tattooing because it, it it struck him, you know, the power. Yeah. especially once he saw large scale kind of like Japanese style stuff, which was real rare in the 1970s. Yeah. So, you know, so that was it for him. He, he gave up that other thing. I mean, he apparently has uh, work in the permanent collection at the Guggenheim. He was selling to collectors and, you know, he just walked away from it all to pursue tattooing, which is pretty interesting. Like you said, you know, it's definitely two very different worlds. You know, the other one is more sophisticated intellectually and all of that, but tattooing, especially in those times where it wasn't, you know, what it is today, it was yeah. at all. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of odd because uh, 
I sort of feel like in, to some degree, people have tried to shift the worlds, right? So for some people, tattooing has become this sort of higher intellectual pursuit as opposed to the visceral communication between two people that it kind of always has been from day one. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's weird. I, I don't, I think before he passed, I think he was starting to, to become a little disillusioned by all of that and a little disappointed, you know, by the tattoo world. But And how was the, the scene? So in, when he was tattooing, was uh, he already moved to New York or? My folks moved to the city in, in 1970. I was born in 72. He started tattooing and really pursuing it around 1975, 76. Uh, so yeah, it was always here. Joined up with him. He started kind of showing me the ropes when I was about 10 years old. I'd help him build needles and things like that. Nice. Um, he thought he thought I had probably a little extra skill because my hands were so small and the needles were nice. so small. Yeah. People playing remember, with, with, with Legos and you were making needles. Yeah, there you go. And uh, yeah, mixing mixing inks with him in the in the kitchen sink, you know. My mother freaking out because there's fucking red all over the sink, you know. Like, Whatever. Um, but... Uh, You know, so he kind of slowly like started showing me stuff and and I got real interested in it almost right away. So, you know, the, the information was was pretty scarce at the time. And uh, so any new book, you know, any any information that came out, you ran out and bought. Um, so we'd sit there and like check it out together. And it was almost like, you know, we were we were able to learn and grow together. And uh, I, I finally decided to, to knuckle down and, and uh, really pursue it when I was about 15, 16. It was like 1986, 80, 85, 86, something like that. And uh, that's been it. And we opened, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but it was illegal here in the city. Yeah. It was from the 62, right? Yeah, from 62 to 97. I had already been tattooing for a number of years with him. Um, the original shop was actually in, we, I grew up in a loft space on the Bowery. It was, it was a large flat. It was like uh, 2,200 square feet or something. And he had a background in carpentry. So he literally built a store inside of the home. Uh, and that's where he worked out of for the majority of time. We renovated that when I started and we were working together by appointment only kind of a thing because uh, it was still illegal. But when they lifted the ban in, in 97, we were both so shocked, um, but realized that there was no way we could, you know, keep working on that level with shops opening all around us. So we found a store over on First Avenue, and that's where I still am for now, you know, if I can keep it going through this pandemic situation. So you grew up in the Bowery, right? How how was the scene in the 70s and 80s in those times uh, regarding tattoo words? And was your father as well in contact with uh, with the other artists in the, in the city? Well, you know, I mean, that's the thing. There was no real scene at the time. I listened to your, your interview with Lau the other day, as he pointed out, there were what, 400 something tattooers in the world. Um, I think, I think by the early eighties, there were maybe six or seven tattooers in New York. And that's the five boroughs. I was interviewing yesterday, a guy named Terry Manton, which is a Scottish guy. 
and uh-huh. uh, we did a sort of a special on on Scottish history. So he he's really oh, cool. he made a mission on things you know finding things out and stuff. So he's really recording the history from you know before turn of the century. And he was telling me at some point in Scotland, in all of Scotland, there were like seven tattooers. And yeah. I was like, man, you know, thinking yeah. that way. Because I remember when I was a kid, you know, in my city, there were four people, you know, tattooing. And right. uh, one in each corner of the of the city, you know. So, yeah, definitely a different, you know, different time. It's, a, yeah, the whole landscape's different, you know. I mean, access to information and and quality technology, you know, quality tools has changed everything uh a lot of people would you know would would argue that it's too accessible and it's hard not to disagree um but at the same time you know if you know what you're doing and i think it's important to have the access to to quality stuff you know i mean i remember my dad buying packs of bicycle spokes to bend them into needle bars because you just you couldn't really get them, and if you did, I think there were maybe two suppliers. It was like Spalding and Rogers and National, and that's it. And uh, trying to get your hands on one of those catalogs was like mining for gold. You know, forget it. Um, so you had to make do with whatever you could find, and you know, it was real. It was a real innovative time. Um, but now I think younger tattooers are, are uh, sort of reaping all that stuff you know you know when when we get on this topic obviously there is a lot of uh um different opinions on it right and uh and i think both like both sides are equally valid you know because i think it's it's important that things are accessible as well to make things a bit more safe and and as well on some levels you see technically evolving but at the same time you i think this is my personal opinion that you need to go a certain process of at least some level of hardships in order to make some sort of selection you know of the people that really loves this and people that just you know would do either this or something else as long as it's cash i I would i would tend to agree with that you know um i mean the the apprenticeship system seems to have gone by the wayside you know, everybody that's been tattooing for two years out has one or two apprentices. And, you know, at some point, give it a year, they go open their own shop or they go work for somebody else. I mean, I know people that take apprentices that won't hire the apprentices after they've cut their teeth a little bit. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah. oh, you know, go somewhere else and figure it out and then come back to me in five years. It It's the, the mentality is a little weird to me. Um I think, uh, you know, how lazy do you have to be to not want to uh, set up and break down your own workstation? It's not that fucking yeah. hard. <laughs> you know, it's kind of weird. But uh, but I've had people work with me that, um, you know, I, I, I make them set up their own workstations. I don't have a, I don't have an apprentice or helper and they get all flustered. You know, I've never I haven't had to do this since I was, you know, sweeping floors like. Sorry, bud. <laughs> That's funny, man. Because, because to me, this is funny because I've been, I've been, and I do travel a lot, and and so I've been working in more shops that I can remember. And so I've seen uh-huh. the whole range, right? So you get to a point where, okay, this is how it works here. This is how it works here. Period. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah, and absolutely. so to me, it's a little funny, you know, when somebody gets so stuck on one method of doing things, you know, because yeah. one day maybe you might not have that helper. I mean, a lot of younger people, I don't know how long you've been tattooing, but a lot of younger people don't remember the 80s and the 70s. Tattooing was a dead art form by the 60s and 70s. And uh, people like my dad and, and Ed and people that were really influential in the so-called renaissance of tattooing all seemed to have the same idea at the same kind of time. Realized that it was an essentially dying art form and could be elevated and, uh, you know, possibly remarketed to a new generation of people, which <laughs> was beyond successful. To the yeah. point that I don't think anybody ever expected this. But I think a, a lot of uh, younger people don't keep that in mind and don't realize that the bottom could fall out at any point. Yeah. And we may be at that point right now. I mean, this this whole COVID-19 thing is going to change the landscape possibly forever. We thought HIV was going to be the problem back then, right? But this is... This is airborne, and it's a whole different uh, learning curve. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to end up dropping out unless they're really stoic and, and really involved. Yeah. You, know? you know what? If you want to see this on another angle, right, it might just be uh, part of the natural selection. We might have assumed that it would take another form, perhaps financial form, like you know, some shops would struggle and then die out, for example, because there are too many. We didn't see this coming, but maybe this is that part of the natural selection where, okay, there are too many tattooers, something happened, and right. that is going to restore the balance for those that just really, really want to be in there, even if it's yeah, tough. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's pretty much my point. Yeah that's, that's, yeah, that's basically what I was trying to get at. Who knows? And uh, how was it, you know, for the people that are not too familiar with, with uh, the New York scene, because obviously such a rich tradition of, of tattooing, do you want to give like a little overview over the major or most influential artists that come from that? Current or past? Past. Obviously, all the, the Bowery tattooers were very influential in keeping that spark alive or even even creating the spark to any degree. I have a feeling that uh, their motivations were probably primarily financial, which is fine, you know. But um, those folks were, were very influential going forward. There was a whole period of time. I mean, there was Tony Polito out in Brooklyn. I think he started like around 1959. And he was the only game in town for a very long time. So obviously, huge influence on the tattooing scene, what little little bit there was. Like I said, my dad started in, in the 70s. And I think at that point, Tom DeVito was around. A lady named Ruth Martin, who actually quit, I think, in the early 80s. Um, but she was around. And there were a few stragglers. I mean, mostly like kitchen magicians, you know, like uh, <laughs> people working out of their bedrooms and stuff like that. Only a few people really operating at a semi-professional level, you know. It's very interesting, you know, that you mentioned the financial part because sometimes, and this is a mistake that I've been doing and I do sometimes as well, where, you know, you, you, you know, you have some opinions where tattooing is so, you know, all about the quality and the spirit and this and that. And then sometimes this is backed up by the tradition or the old tattooers. But then when you actually look back in the 50s, the 60s, most of these old time tattooers, they were not about necessarily the art form. Absolutely. Uh, like you said, it was about it the wasn't financial. It wasn't considered an art form. 
you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it was uh, mostly just young art school graduates in the 60s and 70s that started going, hey, this is like a folk art. And all these tattooers are going, art? Fuck you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Polito told my dad once, he was like, oh, you art school kids are making me rich. <laughs> you know, something like that. So, you know, it, it, it was never art brute at best. You know, I mean, these guys, half of them could draw maybe on like a ninth grade level if they yeah, were real yeah. good. But that, that major renaissance, I think, really caught hold like uh, in the 70s and through to the 80s and now there are people, I mean, this, these new generations of kids, you know, doing stuff. I don't, half the time I look at these tattoos, I don't even think we're working in the same medium. You know, <laughs> I don't really, they're doing that with needles. It's a little boggling. I think I'm so rooted in certain kind of uh, traditional approaches to design and tattoo um, that uh, it gets tough to keep up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I see that. I've been working with some people with, with many years in the business, 30, 40, you know, a very long time tattooing. And I see that the ones that, you know, keep staying at the top levels are the ones that have less prejudice and more of an open minded so that they can actually catch up with the times. Because if the iPad comes up, they're like, OK, let me learn how to use that rather than, yeah. oh. You know, because then otherwise what happens is that technology progress and you stay behind and, and the, the, the kids that learn things very fast, they're just going to, you know, surpass well, you very fast. I really feel that tattooing is about longevity, you know, and uh, and access. Uh, as a tattooist, you have to be accessible. If you're moving around all the time, you start making customers here and there. Um, if they can't find you, they'll forget about you, forget it, you know, it's, they'll move on, find somebody else, which is natural, makes sense, you know, I do the same thing with my barber. But if you can't perform the kinds of uh, things that are being asked of you, then yeah, you're going to get left by the wayside, you know, somebody else will take care of that for them. Yeah. So it, it's tough, you know, there's this whole like new concept of specializing, right? So there are people that that specialize in traditional Americana tattooing or specialize in only portraits or specialize in only lettering. And, and that's all fine and good, but it's kind of counterintuitive to the way I was brought into it and, and the way I was kind of taught to look at it all. It's very difficult. The learning curve is huge. And yeah, like you just said, you have to keep, keep trying to evolve, you know, keep one eye on the on the horizon and seeing what other people are doing and stealing whatever you can and, you know, thinking about what kind of process they went through to get to that end. Cause it looks great. Right. So, you know, what is it they did, you know, stealing whatever you can. <laughs> yeah. It's a tradition in, in graphic arts anyway. And what's that famous quote? Um, the mark of a good artist is how much they steal. The mark of a great artist is who they steal from. No. <laughs> Yeah, I've always liked that. So, and I've always kept yeah. that in mind. I mean, I have my limitations. I can't do everything. You know, there's a lot of stuff. Like I said, I look at these uh, people that come in with these images on their phone or whatever that they want, you know, to hire me for commission. And I just look at them and can't relate. I have no, I don't even know where to begin, you know. There is a degree of 
uh, something that you're better at rather than something else. Everybody has a strong point, a weak point. But I think that even if you promote sometimes a certain thing because it's what people kind of recognize you more with, so to speak, like let's say Japanese or, you know, online. But I really believe, and I think especially the older generation um, think the same, that first of all, you got to be able to satisfy on a on a high level whatever comes through yeah. the door. Then with exceptions, for example, myself, I don't do portraits, realistic portraits, because then in right. that case, I say, okay, go to, go to this guy or this girl. But in general, even if you see only certain things on you know social medias, but then the reality in the shop is different. You know, when you come yeah. in and you ask for that thing, I'll be able to do it, you know, because sure. otherwise it makes no sense. That's the bottom line. I mean, it's a service, you know, and and uh, you're asking strangers to be your patron. How can you best help them get from point A to point B? But it's not always easy. And people have, you know, obviously, especially with all the TV programs and all this stuff, people have preconceived notions coming in the door a lot of the time and that's that's even trickier to deal with dealing with people and people skills is an art form all into itself you have to learn you know and 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 figure that one out or maybe it's just not for you it's one of those things i mean i i I can't tell you how many great looking tattoos i've seen on people and yeah you know the tattoo's okay or whatever but the guy was such an asshole like well you sat there for three or four hours it's it's bizarre to me there's a disconnection you know but it, it is what it is i mean that's the world we live in now people are willing to put up with with silly things because they think they're getting something other than a pretty picture on their arm i guess i don't know you know you're gonna look at that thing forever you know what's the memory that comes with it maybe is is that ugly afternoon with that unpleasant person you know so it makes yeah, absolutely no exactly. sense exactly i mean i've had people show me tattoos that they got really talented people perfect tattooing horrible experience and now they're nitpicking and picking out every flaw because of the connection you know the connection to the experience that they had and that's a bummer you know i don't want that yeah. for myself yeah and uh, yeah. can you remember how the band of tattooing in new york came around how did that, well, I was reading was some sort of, you know, health issues and politics, whatever. How did that happen? He, yeah, exactly. Health issues, politics, all of it. Um, basically, they cited that there were, I think, five cases of hepatitis out of one shop in, in Coney Island. That was supposed to be the uh, the catalyst for the whole thing. Um, I, my father and I went to every city council meeting just to keep an eye on what was going on. And the city council actually said that it was most likely to do with the 1964 World's Fair, which was being held in Queens here. At the time, most of the tattoo shops were like around the Port Authority uh, or around the seaport, you know, closer to the seaport, things like that. And uh, as you know, they were not the clean, sterile, commercial environments that they are today so supposedly they, they just they wanted to clean up the city and get that element uh out of sight essentially although somebody else actually suggested that the underage son of a ta- of a city council person had gotten tattooed on the bowery and uh when they went to confront the tattooist the person told them to fuck themselves and take a hike. 
and that brought the hammer down on everybody. So, so they took they took it personal. Yeah. So you know, it, the whole thing is probably somewhere in between. I have a feeling that the uh, the uh, cleaning up of the city for the sixty four World's Fair is the most likely. I mean, even the city council agreed to that because uh, you know they admitted that there were no actual documented cases of hepatitis necessarily coming out of a tattoo shop. You know, there were plenty of cases of hepatitis, but not it couldn't be traced to any one place specifically. I think the city ended up actually going after Coney Island Freddie Grossman at the time. I think they, they tried to sue him or something like that um, for, for creating the uh, the hepatitis outbreak, but I think it was disproven and dismantled and nothing ever really came of it. So when, when they decided to lift the ban, the standpoint was, um, well, you know, this happened. This is most likely why, but since then, people have been tattooing. There's been no complaints about tattooing, and there's been no pinpointable evidence of uh, disease transmission through tattooing. So let's lift the ban, you know, and that's through the AIDS epidemic. I mean, the AIDS crisis was really bad here in New York for quite a while and, and nobody was wearing gloves, you know, I mean, you sterilized your needles, you know, but you reused them, you know, the good guys would, would, uh, take a honing stone and knock off the barbs and <laughs> throw it in a, in a sterile packaging and re-sterilize yeah. it. If, not everybody was doing that. Some people would just, yeah. you know, some people are still running bucket traps. I mean, you know, you got one needle, you use it all day. Before the ban, I think here in the city, the, the health department guidelines were that you had to change your rag every day. And you had to change your needles once a week. Wow. <laughs> okay. And that was it, you know, and you had to keep a bucket of Lysol by your workstation to wipe things down with. And that was it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard stories about old Charlie Wagner. You know, he would charge different prices for a tattoo based on how many times he had to spit in the ink to thin it out. <laughs> you know? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, like that, you know what I mean? And, you know, like I said, no, or like you pointed out, nobody was really thinking as much about it as a high art form or form of expression as it was a stamp that you wore, you know, maybe an emblem marking something, but uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the elevated enlightened, <laughs> you know, form of expression yeah. that it is today, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So, yeah, it's so fascinating to think about the contrast, you know, it's like two different worlds, you know, it's like yeah. two different people. And um, well, I think it's about to change again. I think we're about to see a whole different evolution in the standards of practice and, uh, and the height of uh, procedure, we're trained in bloodborne pathogens. We're not trained in airborne diseases. You know, it, it's, it, you know, I mean, doctors don't even know how to deal with it. Yeah. It's really crazy. Yeah. Your biggest influence is your father. Yeah. Right. And what would you say is the thing that influenced you the most of the way your father thought you or the way he was working or the way he would do things or see things? Something that really well, got stuck with you, and, and you can see that in yourself. His sensibility towards elevating his own art and his own self. 
it's probably the thing I'll always take away. I mean, I have to this day, there's one wall in the shop that's just flashed out. It's all his drawings. They're all the originals. Uh, some of them are color rendered. Majority of them aren't. I think I have well over 300 sheets of flash. Some of them with up to a hundred designs on them. I mean, really crazy. Um, but then behind some of those images, behind some of that flash is the original flash that he made in the 70s. And so for him, it was a, a never ending process. He would take things down, redraw it, thinking he could get it just a little bit better. And uh, so that kind of a thing, I think, stuck with me quite a bit, you know. Also, the respect, I think, for the culture and the world. I mean, tattooing lives in its own little bubble. It's its own world in a lot of ways for people that are open to that and recognize that. Um, I think a lot of, especially younger people, there's fairly little consideration for the culture of tattoo. If we're not careful, it'll, it'll die out. Uh, and it'll be, once again, completely unrecognizable to you know, people like us that are living through it. Right. So actually I think doing things like podcasts and, and, you know, I was listening to some of your other podcasts and these kinds of colorful characters, (laughs) you know, are being swapped out for generic service providers that are really uh, more in it for the monetary than preserving any of the spark or or the specialness of of that specific world. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah, Try this is one of the goals behind this series of podcasts, which is that's why I try as much as I can to interview the old timers, you know, people with 20, 25 plus years in the business, right. because it's a different breed. Does this and mean that, I'm an old timer now? Is that what you're saying? I, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> you got the experience. You know, it's not as <laughs> you're pretty young, but, you know, you got a very long tradition. And, uh, you know, it's a different breed. Like you said, a bit of a dying breed because the way I like to think about these people is that many of them are pirates. Many of them are have a different sense of adventure regardless of the art, the money, or this and that. It's just a different attitude and different values. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I try to record as well. I, I Obviously, I deeply enjoy for myself this process of discovery, but I try to record and give a voice to this a little bit to contrast the the, the tendency of the market, which mm-hmm. overflowed the industry with yeah with influencers or with tattooed models or you know TV shows yeah. and stuff, so definitely give a voice, especially for the younger people that don't know about this. So you show them, hey, it wasn't like this. Right. You know, it wasn't Absolutely. used to be like this. This is what you do for a living comes from. Don't forget, not that you know Vogue commercial. You know, so and it's very interesting because. I was talking with the with the person that organized a lot of conventions, and uh, you know we were talking about this, and was saying, you know, today you have a such a high technical level because people are able to realize crazy thing on the skin, but everything became so boring. <laughs> yeah, well, you know? it's so interesting. I mean, I uh, you, you see a lot of these, like you said, really. Technically beautiful, technically, you know, really well done tattoos of images that seem to have no connection to the person wearing it at all. You know, um, it's just bizarre. That is a priority 
approach, the fact that it's not about you to show how you know skilled you are, but it's really about the person and to some degree your skills, but it's about the person and the connection you make with these people. And then the tattoo is a, it's a sub-product, so to speak, right? I, I totally agree with that. I think that tattooing at the end of the day is about people. That's the bottom line. You know, it, it's a form of expression for people. It's part of what separates us from the animals, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but then what does that mean? So, you know, why is somebody getting tattooed? Well, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, as long as they give me money for it. But how does this image or this concept or this design connect to the person wearing it? You know, it, it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've seen like beautiful images on young Scandinavian kids of like uh, African women in the tundra from freaking National Geographic photographs and beautiful, beautiful design, really well executed. Why that? <laughs> you know, <and> there's no, <laughs> there's no answer. It just looks pretty, and you know, that's cool, but but it's odd. It's odd yeah. to me. But I remember. This friend uh, telling me about this tattooer, they really wanted to do this portrait of this actor. So really wanted to tattoo this person's face on somebody. So he really uh-huh. sold it to this guy and he got it and it looked very pretty. But like you say, it was a very specific person from a very specific movie and the customer had no connection or, or anything whatsoever with that image. Never even heard of the actor. <laughs> or never watched the movie, you know? And yeah. you're like, that's really stretching it. You know, that's really yeah. selling it. And then you're just thinking about yourself rather than the person, yeah? Yeah, no, I think that that's an important point, Steph, is that the, it's, you know, at, at the end of the day, it, it's not about us. It's really, it's about the customer. Now, you can you can butt heads with the customer and you can disagree, and the customer's not always right, especially these days. You know, yeah. probably yeah. 60% of the time they're not right. But then I think, uh, you know... Like I was saying about people skills, part of your job is to gauge the person in a direction that is going to be amiable on both ends and there's some connection. Most people just, they don't have reference. And this is going to sound really cynical, but I think the majority of people out there are visually illiterate. I think a good portion of the time, they don't really know what they're looking at when they're looking at it, you know, and they're relying on somebody else to tell them what's good and what's bad. And some people will take advantage of that. That's the bottom line, you know, yeah. <laughs> whether it's yeah. good or bad, like, it's, yeah. you know, yeah. they'll, they'll tell you like, this is what you should get. You know, I don't know. I guess there's a place for that too, but I think people will tend to resent you later if you do that too much yeah. anyway. How is it in your, cause I believe your, your shop has been one or if not the longest uh, running, right? And uh, yeah. so you're obviously well established in your community, well known because of, of the time that you built this trust. True. How is it? Right. We're, how, we're, no, we're known all the way around the block. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how, is, how is the area where your shop is? I've never been to New York yet. Surprising. Oh, okay. but, but well, anytime you want to come out, let me know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, I imagine New York being very different depending on because it's so big and every area or certain areas have such a perhaps specific identity, even if, you know, gentrification, all of that. But I guess the Bronx or Brooklyn or this and that, they have their own soul, so to speak. How is Absolutely. it where you where you have the shop? How is, how is that? 
Um, well, you know, we're right in the heart of the Lower East Side. We're right at First Street and First Avenue. I don't know if you know, but the city's kind of like uh, sectioned off like a grid, right? So the numbers go up as you go uptown and cross town. So we're like right at the apex, right at the beginning of it. Everything below that is is uh, named streets and it's much older city. But the Lower East Side, you know, kind of classically and traditionally has been the poor neighborhood. It was, uh, I think, around the turn of the century, it was mostly like uh, Jewish and Polish, um, a lot of Eastern European, Hungarian neighborhood. And then through to the 50s, um, when uh, the big migration out of Puerto Rico happened, I mean, that was a, that's its own story, but uh, the Lower East Side started to become more and more kind of Puerto Rican and Spanish and, and black, but it was always the poor neighborhood, which is why I grew up there, because <laughs> the rent was affordable and, you know, you could get real space. I mean, my dad, like I said, he had this gigantic loft. He paid almost nothing. The building is long gone now, gone to progress. So what was originally a very poor neighborhood is now an extremely affluent neighborhood. And a lot of the things that I remember from my youth are just gone. Almost all of it, actually. Things like, you know, CBGBs and, you know, Famous spots like that just couldn't cope. Um, so the, the landscape has changed a lot. It, it's not nearly as gritty. The Bowery is now a fairly affluent strip of land. Um, there are museums there now. There are hotels. So, you know, it's interesting. I've been doing a little bit of like a similar kind of project where anytime I have like one of dad's old customers come through, I sit them down and, and interview them. I have yet to do anything with, with the audio, but uh, just talking to these old timers, some of them have been coming around since like 1977, you know, wow. and talking about the neighborhood and stuff like that, you know, it was, it was a dangerous neighborhood. It was bad up till probably the early mid eighties, you know, and uh, I, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when it started happening. I want to say when Mayor Giuliani was was mayor it started to shift and uh the the bloomberg administration just completely changed the entire landscape so now it's a lot of hotels around me um it's a lot of higher end restaurants all of which are suffering <laughs> profoundly right now you know because of this lockdown who knows what it's going to be yeah. you know when they start to reopen the the city you know but yeah. one thing that my personal opinion that I like in what you said is that, for example, we're talking about tattoo shops, but it could be literally anything. But when you have contact with uh, a bit of a lower class situation where uh, there is struggle, you know, uh, it's more of a blue collar reality, obviously, assuming that it's safe enough for you not to, you know, get put your life at risk because it's so dangerous. But what I like is that when you get in contact with this type of uh, social class, you you get to experience life a little a little bit more authentically because when it's too sure. when it's too distilled and too rich and too this and that, uh, you, you miss the struggle. You miss the coming together because you have to. Otherwise, you're not gonna make it. You miss the stories. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think yeah, that, absolutely. I mean that was part of Dad's thing about walking away from the art world was, you know, and, and approaching tattooing was that he. He literally said he felt that tattooing 
cater to a better class of people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> meaning, you know, real people, salt of the earth people, working class people, you know, and it's, there's that old saying of tattoos are a poor man's way of appreciating art. Right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's that's a little different now, but you know, <laughs> you get the gist. <laughs> yeah, I was I was interviewing Hank <clears throat> Hanky Panky in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. and uh, he says something like, uh, "Tattoos are the poor man's jewelry, and we are the poor man's Rembrandt." And there you I go. Was like, exactly. Oh, that's exactly what you just said. You know, it's, it's, so it's the Dutch spin on the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and and I really hope that sometimes you know people have to make a career and have to be smart financially as well because it's not just about passion but you gotta pay bills and that. But sometimes I see that when you reach a certain level of celebrity, so to speak, which is funny to associate this word with tattooing in the same sentence, but when people achieve a certain level of uh, acknowledgement, so to speak, their mm. high their rates go so high. Oh, you know, yeah. which is smart business. But what I think is, even if you can, what happened is that as a concept in general, that's my personal opinion, open to discussion. But when you are so expensive because you can, now your product, which is tattooing, became a, a luxury commodity. Right. So now you have that selection where the, you know, the guy working in construction cannot afford it. And to me, that yeah. goes so against the old, identity of it which makes no sense you know it becomes absolutely i would tend to agree yeah i would tend to agree with that it it makes it not accessible anymore to the average person and that's you know one of the beauties of of this kind of trade is the accessibility to people i mean it is what it is and i get it but it's not what it was and (laughs) you know it's 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 a little hard to relate to i think myself you know in your personal career, in, in your personal trajectory, apart from your father, is there any other people or movement or, or, or styles that you found, you find that really influenced you and, and you got struck at some point, you saw something from, you know, a movement or an artist and you're like, oh yeah, that really got stuck with me or pulled yeah. me a little bit more into this, this direction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in terms of like, uh, other tattooists, folks like Dana Brunson, uh, Zeke Owen was a big influence and a help for me and my father, Richie Montgomery. There's a whole number of people I could probably go on and on about it. Yeah, Doc Forrest was huge, huge influence and a dear friend. I miss Doc. In the 70s, when I was a kid, when dad was starting out and getting involved with tattooing, the Japanese style tattoo was like uh just starting to trickle into the states i mean that was one of his big catalysts he he saw that he had a bunch of old sailor tattoos that he decided you know he wanted to get rid of and then he saw the japanese style and he had lived in japan in the 50s when he was younger um but that was it you know so that was always held up to me as like the highest level of fine art in, in tattooing since grown and learned to appreciate every style of tattooing on some level, but I've, I've studied the Japanese style quite a bit. And, uh, and that definitely is a big influence beyond that. 1960s psychedelic poster artists were a big influence on me. Um, people like Greg Irons, who, you know, also happened to be a tattooer, but, uh, you know, Rick Griffin, Stanley Mouse, Alton Kelly, all these kinds of people, um, were an influence on me real early on because also I came 
through the kind of New York graffiti scene of the 80s and sort of abandoned all that when I decided to pursue tattooing. But uh, that kind of approach to design always sort of stuck with me, you know, that kind of iconic bang in your face. Yeah. It's so interesting how I see this in, in old artists, really almost, uh, all the tattooers, and how Japanese is recognized as the sublimation, almost the, the highest sublimation of, of the form of tattooing. Right. You know, like, even if you, you specialized in traditional American, whatever, but Japanese is almost the next, next level in terms <laughs> of, you know, all the elements that come together in the composition and the flow and the colors. It, it's absolutely to see how everybody gets to the same conclusion after, you know. Well, years. especially real early on, I think um, seeing these large scale compositions forming much larger parts of the body and creating a narrative was like a revelation for a lot of people in the West. And now what people have done with it, I mean, it's it's pretty striking to see some of these uh, real large-scale compositions. I mean, I look at work by, like, uh, you know, Philip Lou, for example. It's the obvious reference that comes up. But uh, I feel like that guy's on another planet. I mean, it's, you know, his approach to design and technique have evolved to such a degree, but it has to do with a real base understanding of those traditional forms of tattooing and design. And then he has a whole different graphic art life, right? That that seems to be almost separate from tattooing per se. So I think that's important, you know, for tattoo people and, and fewer, I see fewer and fewer people doing this, but ripping reference from everywhere. Like I said, stealing what you can looking at it and figuring it out and and, uh, trying to force that square peg into the round hole, you know? Yeah. Eventually you knock the edges off and it'll go through. (laughs) It gets in there. (laughs) And this is a little bit maybe different question on the spot, right? But can you think about your favorite book that you have in your collection? My favorite book, tattoo related? Yeah, um, art related, you know, something that you're like, oh, yeah, that's my, you know, my I, I have so many. I have so many. Actually, I have a big stockpile of books I need to sell, <laughs> to be honest. Even without mentioning like the specific title or something, but just if you can pinpoint in your head. Well, you know, I mean, I have uh, uh, a book of prints by Yoshitoshi that I find a lot of uh, inspiration from. I own pretty much all of the uh, Horiyoshi books, almost. I think the one that I that I probably looked at the most, especially as a young tattooer trying to figure things out, was uh, Horiyoshi's World, Horiyoshi 2. I have a copy of that still, but I think it's almost falling apart from looking at it so much. <laughs> to me, that yeah. was like the Bible when I was, you know, trying to figure out this... Uh, this sort of Japanese style thing. And, you know, I still look at it and go, oh my God, I didn't even think about that, right? But then, you know, you, you kind of, you have to pay attention. One of the last times I saw Zeke was at a convention and he looked at my work and he was like, yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta do the wind bars like this, you know, and the clouds gotta go in this direction. And, and it, it took me quite a while to chew on that information and figure out what the fuck he was talking about. I think at the end of the day, I don't even know if he realizes it, but he was talking about pushing energy on the body. 
And that's, uh, I think, a big part of what that style, that kind of scale can afford. You can really do a lot on that level if you have a base in, in the foundations uh, of that kind of design. I think the the word that uh, explains it the most is understanding, like you said. You know, the fact that you're talking about, about, about energies and especially, you know, in the background, that takes, you know, people a long time to understand that apart from looking good, there is the next level, which is the gesture. It's, it's the energy, like you said, it's the movement that creates that specific form. And you see when people really distinguish themselves from the rest, those few people that you can count in one or two hands, just because they had their concepts so assimilated and digested and, right. you know, put it back out there with their own input because they understand. So now that that tattoo or the image or whatever is so alive and they so far away, like you said, Philip Liu is so far away from every, everybody else just because that's what's lacking the energy. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the communication, right? So yeah, you could put a cat rose on somebody's arm, but you know, what's going on with that? Did you do what you can to make it, that much better than the last time you did it, you know? Yeah. Is this evolving or is it just some static icon that keeps getting reiterated constantly? Yeah. Is there a project or something that you're looking forward to for the slash immediate future? I mean, I have a, I have a number of large-scale work that I've been working on for a while and a few projects to start once I can figure out how to reopen safely. And uh, we can figure out how to progress, you know, in a in a conscious and safe manner. I mean, the the uh, the rate of infection here in New York is just it's it's scary. It's really scary. So uh, you know, I don't really want to put anybody in jeopardy. Health is obviously much more important, right? Of course. But I have I have those things that I'm looking forward to focusing on. Like I said, I've been doing those weird little interviews, and I've talked to a couple of people about possibly trying to put together some kind of book on dad and his legacy beyond that i'm just enjoying time with my cats and my wife and, you know yeah. cooking it's a lot and <laughs> you know if you look at the bright side you know then then you can connect or do the things that you never have or find the time for right especially yeah. on a social level like you know in a relationship in a family or whatever you know yeah well i appreciate like, you know the consideration i, I appreciate this phone call no, man, thank you. Thank you for letting me do it. Because as I said, at least in my own opinion, I, I I regard highly people with, you know, your level of experience. For me, it's more than we talked about. It's more than a pretty picture. It's what you represent and your experience that, that you have and, and the way you see things, you know. So for me, people like yourself, you know, represent tattooing in a way that it's uncommon, you know. Yeah, and uh, let me ask you a few, a couple of last things. Can you think about uh, an advice that you received or, le- or a lesson you learned, something that you realized over your life that stuck with you and helped you a lot? There's a million things like that. It, it's hard to pinpoint. Um, I remember Shotzi Gorman at one point, <clears throat> I forget what we were talking about. It might have had to do with tattooing, but I feel like it, uh, it's expanded, but, uh, in my life as I, as I get older, but he said, he said, never go against gravity. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm still chewing on that, you know, trying to figure that one out. I mean, in terms of craft, if, if that's what he meant, then I get it. Um, go with the flow. 
Yeah, go with the flow, right? So, you know, you have to be uh, you have to be pliable and accessible for your customers, you know, and and people around you. Be generous with your time. I think, uh, you know, that's one of those things that the people like Dana Brunson and and uh, Lyle Tuttle and, and Bill Salmon, people like that, taught me. You know, they were always so generous with their time and their information. You know, and talk about a wellspring of history and information, really. As craftsmen, I think it's important. Like you said, it's about the people. So it's uh, it's important to, like you said, be, be kind, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, one last thing. If you somehow, you know, you could go back and you could talk to yourself when you were, you know, before starting tattooing, like when you were just <laughs> starting, is there something that you would tell yourself to do differently? Or, or yeah, I tell it told me to get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> Cut your fucking hair, kid. Get a real job. <laughs> Finish school. <laughs> you know, become a productive part of society. It, you know? But no, real. I chose to scribble on people instead. <laughs> <laughs> I think it turned out for the best. So, uh, yeah, it's, right? it's been it's been an interesting journey. I mean, I, like we were talking about earlier, you know, that the landscape's changing, and you know, and things are different, but. Uh, Hopefully not for the worst, and you know, hopefully we'll people like us will have uh, many more years in in the craft to to hone and polish, you know, what we do and become better artists and possibly better people through human interaction. Yeah, you know? learning. Nice. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a it was very very nice talk, and as always, I I, I leave these talks with a, a little bit more wisdom, hopefully, than when I start. <laughs> that's good that means you're open-minded that's a big deal <laughs> i try to do you do you travel sometimes do you have any plan to visit europe at some point or well actually i was just at the uh amsterdam convention a few months ago um i went i went to work but there was no work so i mostly just hung out and you know visited with people so that was cool I was planning on doing the Stockholm convention this year, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. So, you know, yeah, I want to, um, it's always in my mind, but, uh, you know, it's, it's tough with the store and with the cost of business in New York, it, it makes it difficult to maneuver. Yeah. Um, but this is, this is even worse. This is, I, you know, like I said, I've left the house seven times in the last two months, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's spooky. I mean, just getting on the subway is uh, it's a mind fuck, you know. You, nobody seems to know what's going on. So, you know, it's yeah, difficult. Yeah. You know, you're wearing masks and gloves. And it's hard not to get too paranoid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully I meet you as well over here at some point. Absolutely. So you're you're in Paris? Uh, no, I've been I've been just traveling oh, for the sorry. last couple of years. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm thinking of moving to to Madrid in Spain to to be a bit more stable from whenever the world starts again, you know. But okay. yeah, because yeah. I have friends and family a bit all over the place, so you know, I travel quite often to to go visit friends and shops and stuff, you know. So definitely I'm all over the place. Nice. Yeah, I think that's that's going to be one of my goals once uh things sort of level out, you know. I want to get out more, especially in Europe. Some really beautiful places over there that I haven't seen. You know, and if I can set up kind of working vacations and I'll do that. But but that has its own problems, you know. I mean, I spent like a lovely week in Amsterdam. I spent three days of it in a convention hall. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I know. I know the feeling. 
<laughs> so I don't know what's better. Well, hopefully at some point, you know, we cross paths. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, like I said, if you ever, you know, if you want to come out to New York, let me know if, uh, you know, if I got a place, I might have a chair for you. you know? Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Good luck to you, too. I, I hope all this stuff clears up soon, sooner than later. Yeah.